Welcome to the Nutrition Edit Podcast for high-performing women who want to up-level their health and feel their best in their bodies, careers, and personal lives. In this podcast, I'll sift through the latest nutrition and biohacking trends to filter out the bullshit, share what you really need to know, and help you put the good stuff into practice in a way that works for you. You'll get actionable tips from guest experts and myself on how to up-level your mindset, workouts, relationships, and environment, and start feeling like the badass woman you are. Join me as we bust through the bro science and male-centric health paradigm to help you achieve optimal performance, body, mind, and soul. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Nutrition Edit Podcast. My guest today is Dr. Michelle Leary. Dr. Leary is a functional medicine physician specializing in primary care, sexual and hormonal health, fertility, and anti-aging medicine for men and women, and she is the director of functional medicine at Vita Integrated Health. Dr. Leary began her early career in cardiac rehab prior to receiving her doctorate from Bastyr University. Then in 2016, she was the first naturopathic physician ever to be selected for a fellowship in multiple sclerosis management through the National MS Society. She has also completed training at the Institute of Women's Health, American Academy of Anti-Aging Medicine, and the prestigious Institute for Functional Medicine in areas of sexology, hormone management, anti-aging medicine, and metabolic weight loss. In addition to her clinical role, Dr. Leary is the owner and creator of PowerSexBeauty.com, a lifestyle brand and blog dedicated to women who want to empower themselves through optimization of health, invigorate their sexual energy, and live beautifully from the inside and out. Today, we're talking about hormones and what you should and shouldn't be doing to optimize your hormone health so you can feel more vibrant in every stage of life. I love Dr. Leary's approach, and she shares so much great info with us today, and I think you're going to love it too. And with that, let's jump into my interview with Dr. Michelle Leary. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Nutrition Edit Podcast. I'm your host, Jeannie Oliver. And today I have a very special guest with me, Dr. Michelle Leary, who is the Director of Functional Medicine for Vita Integrated Health. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This is so fun. Yeah, I'm so glad you could join me. Thank you for taking the time. So let's just jump right in. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and how you got into practicing functional medicine? Yeah, so functional medicine is really near and dear to my heart and has been for quite some time. I am the current director of functional medicine, but it took many years to kind of get to this spot and be able to do some of the magical things that I think our colleagues are able to, to do in this current practice. So I um, started off actually back in Switzerland when I was in my early 20s teaching Pilates. I was actually on a study abroad year in southern Switzerland in an area called Lugano. And yeah, it's beautiful there. Have you been there? I've not been to Lugano. I've been Lausanne and that that area. It's kind of like a magical place that everyone, if they have the opportunity to go, it's right north of Como. So here I was 20 years old living in this uh, flat that was in Lugano. It was was a very special time. (laughs) And I was at the time very deeply involved in the fashion industry. I thought that I wanted to do international business and had actually done an internship for Valentino and learned very, very quickly that I did not love the fashion industry for a variety of reasons, namely some of the kind of cutthroat behaviors that go on behind the scenes is one might imagine if you've seen Devil's Wears Prada. Yes. And I ended up starting teaching Pilates. And 
Pilates was such a savior for me in terms of stress relief. I had clients who were coming up to me asking about their bodies, what to do for their health, nutrition. And I loved being a resource. However, I didn't have beyond my Pilates training, I didn't have any other education in that realm. In the health realm, I had taken lots of science courses in end of high school at a community college, but beyond that, was really not immersed in, in the science world. So I changed my major. Uh, I decided that I was going to switch to kinesiology, which is kind of study of human movement, uh, exercise science, and ended up taking another extra year of my undergrad to do that and really fell in love with uh, anatomy and physiology and particularly biochemistry. Biochemistry was really where I uh, found that I could dive into what was going on inside the body. And so upon graduation with my exercise science degree, I went into cardiac rehab. I was doing a lot of cardiac rehab, um, which is basically using exercise as a modality of helping someone who's had a heart attack or another cardiovascular event to get well. And that exercise component was obviously so critical as part of their path to healing. But I knew that I wanted more. I wanted to be the one who was helping people prevent the heart attack from the first place and not just from the lens of after treatment. And so I started looking very closely at different doctoral programs, naturopathic, osteopathic, and uh, conventional allopathic medical schools. I did another internship at the National Institute of Health, as well as in New York City. I had the opportunity to shadow a lot of physicians in different specialties and realized that uh, it may actually be more the um, interest of mine to go into naturopathic medicine. And so I ended up doing that um, circa around 2012. I started my program at Bastyr. I trained for four years in naturopathic medicine, and upon actually my third year of school, I was introduced to an amazing book that if uh, your audience hasn't heard of before called The Disease Delusion by Jeff Land, Dr. Jeff Land, who is the founder of the Institute for Functional Medicine, along with his wife, Susan. And he was this just profound influence on my end of school career and my my early years in practice and, and still to this day, I actually saw him last week because I was introduced to him after reading his book from a colleague. He then really got me involved in the Institute for Functional Medicine, which was the organization that trains physicians, nutritionists, uh, dietitians, chiropractors, the whole lot uh, in how to practice functional medicine. So this is a long-winded way of saying that Jeff was was this influence and mentor that has propelled my practice and experience because I then ended up working for the Institute for Functional Medicine concurrent during my residency here is in primary care. Okay. So cool. upon graduation doing that. So it's been a road. It's been an interesting road, but it's been a really special experience that I'm fortunate to have. That's amazing. What a really cool story and journey. I love that. We'll talk more about my interesting brief fashion background too, but I absolutely yeah. can relate to what you're talking about. It's a different, um, a different crowd. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> For I think, sure. I think about what I showed up in that first day, like what I was wearing in that first day and was like, oh gosh, like <laughs> <laughs> high fashion. So it was, it was just a different time, I guess. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So give us a little of 
a brief overview, if you would. I talk a lot about functional medicine, functional nutrition on this show and in my practice, but tell the listeners briefly what functional medicine is and how it differs from conventional Western medicine. Yeah. So functional medicine, it's a great question. I think there's dozens of correct answers, but functional medicine is really looking at the interweavings between genes, biochemistry, the environment, lifestyle, and how all of those things influence how we express outwardly a exhibition of health or potentially an exhibition of dysfunction. And I'm careful to use the term disease because disease is really just a compilation of of dysfunction that happens again and again and again over time and is not able to self-correct. And so functional medicine really uses the foundations of basic science. So the understanding of immunology, biochemistry, making sure we're even going back to genetics, basic genetics, uh, and then applying more modern utilizations of genomics and how we can interpret and understand how someone is functioning as a human. And if they are experiencing symptoms of dysfunction, which is often why people come to you or I, what we need to do to get them back on track uh, using lifestyle as a foundation and then adding things on as a higher level interventions thereafter. I love that. I think a you know, common phrase that we hear in our world is genes load the gun and lifestyle pulls the trigger. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that you explain that beautifully. I, I love the way that you explain that because I've heard it described as addressing root causes versus just the symptoms, but I think even yeah. that's sort of a limited way of describing it. So, And I would argue that there's a lot of, you know, intentionality behind even Western medicine and treating the root cause. And I have a lot of conventional colleagues that, you know, trained in more strictly Western medicine, and they would say they're still treating the root cause, you know. Mm. Um, and I think that it, we have to be careful to say that doctors aren't all intending to treat the root cause. We just sometimes have different tools in our toolbox. And that is, I think, out of, we all go into, I think, patient care because we want to help people. It's just, what are our tools in order to do that? What is our education in order to do that? And fortunately for you and I, we are taught in our educational programs the importance of sleep and exercise and nutrition and stress management. And unfortunately, those are just not prioritized in the conventional medical system right now, but it doesn't necessarily mean they can't be applied um, once someone is in practice. So I think that's important to note. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hello, nutrition editors. If you've been listening and you're ready to put this work into practice in your own life, Head over to joliverwellness.com and book a free 30-minute chat to learn more about coaching with me or to check out my self-study programs. I also invite you to join my email list where you'll hear from me a few times each month with recipes and strategies for reducing stress, improving your metabolic health, and working out smarter, not harder. Subscribers will also receive exclusive offers in my programs that I don't share anywhere else, and you'll get early access to registration for my Body Liberation Together group program. I look forward to connecting with you, and let's get back to the show. So let's talk a little bit or tell us a little bit about hormones because I know this is a big focus for you. And so talk about the role that hormones play when it comes specifically to 
metabolism and how that changes, maybe doesn't change as we age, um, specifically for us women, because so many people come to me, you know, after the age of 40, typically, and say, everything that I used to do and used to work for me no longer works for me. Mm -hmm. My energy's in the tank. I think my hormones are all out of whack what's going on? And obviously that's a very complex question to unpack. Yeah. But I'd love to just focus in today on, you know, metabolic health specifically and the role of of hormones there. So what do you see in your practice and what's your approach? Yeah, it's such a a good and broad question. So I want to just start with um, when we think about women in their early 40s, because I see the same thing, right? It's usually women who have children that may be school age or even entering adolescence, there's a lot of transitional things happening just from a life perspective at that time. And that alone can put a stress on our adrenal glands, which adrenal glands produce cortisol, DHEA, several other very important hormones that then can influence how the thyroid functions can influence how our ovaries function to some extent, and can also influence our weight in a lot of different ways and and metabolism. I should use the term metabolism better than just weight. So I want to just say that there's this, you know, painting broad brushstrokes that time of life is also a factor. But hormonally, things do shift, especially if metabolism is changing simultaneously. And I would argue that metabolism influences hormones more so than hormones influence metabolism. And I think that's a really important distinction for people to understand that if we're going to look at root cause of dysfunction, we have to look at what is somebody's metabolic health and how is that influencing how their hormones are being produced or excreted through the body, processed, metabolized, whatever word you want to use, right? So If we have this, let's just use a made-up case here. If we have this mid-40s individual who is working full-time, has children maybe in middle school, so running them around with all these different activities, she doesn't have a lot of time for herself. Self-care is kind of being put on the back burner. She's eating snacks on the go because she's starving and just trying to get food where she can. It's very likely just from a statistical standpoint, still the person who's doing majority of the household chores and may or may not have a really vibrant, healthy sex life and or relationship with her spouse if she is still partnered or has a partner to begin with. All of those things can play a role in then how metabolism, namely something called insulin resistance, which I know you talk a lot about in in your world and your podcast, I'm sure, can influence how estrogen is then um, not only not only metabolized but also produced to some extent. Okay, right. and so we can see what I call the canary in the coal mine when it comes to insulin resistance start to happen long before we start to notice it on blood sugar. So somebody might have a normal blood sugar marker called a hemoglobin A1C, which is an average, mm-hmm. or they may also uh, not notice anything in terms of blood sugar markers if they get something called a comprehensive metabolic panel. So it's right. really important to note that there are other ways of, from a laboratory perspective, seeing things change. And of course, weight gain is usually one of those pieces and loss of lean muscle tissue. Loss of lean muscle tissue drives part of this dysfunction. So 
So we get into this place where this person, this uh, let's call her Jane, is is just overwhelmed, exhausted, doesn't have any time for herself, starting to notice some changes in terms of how her clothes fit, how her body feels, and she may have less lean tissue than she once did. That is a key for us to then intervene and make sure that we are rebalancing things, whether it be from a nutritional perspective and adequate protein intake, making sure that we are changing the type of exercise that she once did. Maybe running is not the best form of exercise for her body. And looking at ways that we can shift, again, insulin balance. And there's a variety of ways that we can do that, again, through natural interventions and and prescription if warranted. I love that you take this approach (laughs) because I so often see it, people attacking this from the opposite way around, right? And it's really exciting and empowering and I think a huge relief to understand, wait, there are so many steps that we can take just with our nutrition and our lifestyle and the type of movement or exercise that we're doing that can really just help us feel better and have smoother transitions or happier hormones at any point in life, really. Exactly. And and estrogen and progesterone balance uh, is really critical. So as, again, if we use this mid-40s example, as estrogen is starting to rise, and typically it's not necessarily the production of estrogen, which comes from our ovaries. So mm-hmm. our ovaries are the predominant place where estrogen is produced. We may not be ovulating as consistently as we once did. And that creates an imbalance between estrogen and progesterone, where we have higher levels of estrogen because our ovaries are still pumping that out, but our progesterone is not as vibrant or significant, and that creates sometimes these shifts. If you then add in some digestive uh, concerns that may also be influencing how somebody is able to get rid of, excrete their hormones, namely through poor bowel elimination, they're not sweating enough, uh, certainly chronically dehydrated, or or if there's any kidney dysfunction, which can be mild, Mm -hmm. we can see then a slowing of just the whole process. And I talk to my patients about we get these recycled estrogens on board, which estrogen, one of its main jobs is to kind of help us prepare for a pregnancy. That's one of the just evolutionary historical context. Insulin drives up metabolism of estrogen, meaning we can take a little bit of testosterone that our bodies are producing, um, namely from our adrenal glands from women, and aromatize it. That's an enzyme that can change from testosterone to estrogen. So now we have dropping levels of testosterone, which are important for women as well to maintain lean muscle tissue, libido, energy, all the things that start to fall apart a bit. Again, I remember that. I'm going to call it five years premenopausal time, right? So before menopause starts to hit. And that shift then can be accelerated when the ovaries are really starting to get tired. And that's the definition of perimenopause, when we start to see these shifts of whether it be high spurts of estrogen production from the ovaries and then low amounts of production of testosterone often coincide. Yeah. As someone who is entering that phase, (laughs) this all makes perfect sense. And it's really, yeah, you explain it very elegantly and Mm -hmm. and simply because obviously it's a complex process for sure. Yeah. But I think understanding the basics of this is really helpful. Yeah. The science is so critical for women to understand their own bodies. (laughs) No kidding. No kidding. 
and I feel so many of us, I think it's better for the younger generation, yeah. but I, so many of us my age or, or beyond, we knew so little. It mm-hmm. was sort of taboo to talk about. Our parents mm-hmm. didn't necessarily even talk about it with us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's exciting to see that there's so much more good science out there now mm-hmm. that we're shining a light on the fact that there is this sort of disparity of information about women's health. Massive. I mentioned this to you before we started recording, but kind of my passion project, if you will, is through a blog that I've started called powersexbeauty.com. And it's really focused on empowering women to learn more about their sexual health, their bodies, and and really how that interrelates even with their own partnerships, spouses, et cetera, relationships. Because I think there has been this subject of a little bit of a taboo. Hey, you know, you don't talk about sex, maybe within your girlfriends, but if your girlfriends aren't being kind of fully aware of their own bodies, sometimes you can get some misinformation, uh, not intentionally, of course, but then everybody's kind of thinking, well, why am I not normal? And why is this happening? And right. so much of what women experience is normal. And part of that is drop in libido. It, there's yeah. a normal amount of drop in libido. There are ways that we can support it, but the expectation that we are going to no matter what amount of stress, no matter what little sleep, no matter what type of responsibilities are on our plate, that we're just going to be this overly sexual, ravenous human forever is very unlikely, albeit there are ways to mitigate that if that is a way of increasing the person's satisfaction and, and what some of their goals are. There are ways to, that we can look at that. but. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. Well, I'm already fascinated by your blog, so I'm excited to see more of it. And we'll provide all that information in the show notes for you guys too, so you can go check it out. I think too, people suffer so much unnecessarily because they think, oh, well, this is just the way it has to be, especially when we're talking about you know, perimenopause symptoms, yeah. um, going through menopause. We have this idea that it's going to be this nightmarish, hellish thing. Mm-hmm. And you know, you just have to suffer through it and soldier on and continue living up to all of the expectations of yeah. being the superwoman and yeah. quote unquote, you know, having it all, yeah. which really just means we have to do it all. Yeah. So yeah, thank you for championing that and really shedding light on this because yeah. we have enough expectations of ourselves exactly. as it is. And then you add in societal expectations and all of these things. And if we think, well, what, what's wrong with me? I should be X, Y, or Z constantly. And I should have this ravenous sex drive all the time, but we're completely depleted. It's yeah. it's completely unrealistic to expect that of ourselves. And Absolutely. I just think it gives us permission a little bit to step back and go, wait a minute, like I'm a human complex person. My body will change. Yeah. What is normal? What is reasonable yes. to expect of myself and for others to expect of me? Exactly. And and really, there is a little bit of a misunderstanding around how hormones can influence sex drive in the sense that perimenopause can definitely influence sex drive in a variety of ways. Hormonally is, is definitely one of them. But dopamine, which is a neurotransmitter, is the predominant hormone that initiates sexual desire in the brain. So when we think about what drives sex drive, redundant there, but what you know really increases sex drive, it is a brain neurotransmitter mm. piece. And dopamine is a pleasure-seeking neurotransmitter. It is designed right. to tell us to go seek 
for time with friends, to have sex, to spend time in nature, to do whatever it is that we want to do. And if dopamine is, again, not being produced in adequate amounts because of depletion in other areas, which of course the brain is an extremely complex organ, it's not going to function as well. Testosterone, what's important to just kind of maybe bring bring the other hormones full circle here, testosterone stimulates more dopamine binding in the brain. And so you can see this indirect relationship with testosterone, which is why testosterone, a lot of women will come and want their testosterone tested because they'll think, well, that's the issue that's low. And it might be. Mm-hmm. It might mm-hmm. be. But where the literature is going and really where the understanding of sex drive, it's more of if somebody is experiencing anhedonia, which is really loss in interest of pleasure-seeking activities by definition. There's a fantastic book for women who are and men who are interested in this topic. It's called Why Good Sex Matters by Dr. Nan Weiss. She's a neurobiologist and also a sex therapist. It's a really cool combination. And she really talks about this loss of interest in pleasure-seeking activities as the driver of loss of libido. And we see this commonly in women who are postpartum. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where you get somebody who is exhausted. They are giving everything they have to these little beings to try to keep them alive. And their libido, also because of evolutionary pressures, has dropped. Yeah. And then women are still expected <laughs> by their own expectations. Maybe not always, right. maybe not what their husbands or partners are expecting, but their own expectations. Why am I broken? Right. Why, what's wrong with me is something that I hear a lot. And I said this to a patient this morning. I said, <laughs> you evolutionarily were supposed to just be taking care of your children so you could keep them alive. Exactly. And, and nature has not prioritized sex. Doesn't mean we can't influence it using our knowledge of biochemistry and physiology if that's what you want. But let's talk about yeah. like what is it that you want versus what you actually are expecting of yourself. Right. Yeah, exactly. And I think because people are so depleted and so run down and they're doing too much Mm -hmm. or they're just stuck in the daily grind and they haven't prioritized pleasure and fun and true rest, connection, all of these things that feed our soul in life, they're not getting that dopamine (laughs) that would be produced by those things. So I think it kind of goes both ways, right? You're not doing the things that stimulate this. Yeah. And then you're getting less of it and then you want less of it because yeah. you've got no dopamine. Sort of this vicious cycle. Is that exactly accurate? Yeah. That's accurate. That's beautifully said. Mm-hmm. And probably even taking it a step further is we also want to think about the inhibitory mechanisms that block some of that dopamine secretion and also, you know, how those can be influenced. Things like antidepressants even, which can absolutely Wait. be indicated for particularly anxiety disorders, less favorable SSRIs specifically for specifically depression these days per some data that came out a couple years ago, but it's a different conversation. SSRIs can inhibit sex drive because they're intended to raise serotonin, which serotonin is an important neurotransmitter as well in its own right, but it is actually going to inhibit someone's ability to be as interested in sex and particularly that dopamine connection. So Hence why there are agents out there that are in the antidepressant realm that increase dopamine that tend to also not inhibit sex drive. So 
somebody, you know, is listening and is wondering, you know, well, am I on one of those? The name of that agent is Wellbutrin, which is a very common antidepressant. Not to say that everybody should run out and get a Wellbutrin, but I, I do like that one better often than some of the other categories that raise serotonin, depending on the situation. Yeah. And I can't tell you how often I have heard from clients that when they first come see me, they are on one of those mm -hmm. medications mm -hmm. and they will say, I have absolutely zero sex drive mm -hmm. since I've been taking this. Mm -hmm. I don't want to kill myself anymore, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but I also don't want to have sex with my partner. Mm -hmm. It's hurting my marriage. Mm -hmm. And thank God there are better options now mm -hmm. because that's an important part of life too. It absolutely is. Yeah. 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 We and don't want anyone to be depressed. I mean, thank God for some of these things. If it's going to save your life, hundred percent. Yeah. There's Go a time and a place. I yes. think absolutely there's a time and a place, but I think we could both agree that there's, you know, an overprescription epidemic in this country particularly. And it no goes back to the toolbox conversation. If you're trained to only have a set of tools and that toolbox includes writing prescriptions and you only have seven minutes with your patient and they are yeah. saying that they are feeling really, really down, how much counseling you're going to get to do in seven minutes. Exactly. And you add that to the mental health provider crisis right now, how many people can find a therapist post-COVID, especially a therapist yeah. that takes insurance? Good luck. If yeah. you find one and they're good, please send me a message so I can refer people to them because it is near impossible right now to yeah. find. And so we're in a situation where Providers are doing the best they can, and part of that is over-prescribing because what else are you going to do to help your patients? Exactly. Yeah. They yeah. do what they can. Absolutely. Yeah. Exactly. So that said, what are some of the most common ways that you see that we women hijack our hormones? <laughs> Maybe we're in a place where we don't necessarily have access to the type of medical care that we'd like to get, or maybe the mental health care, et cetera. So we want, well, or we do, whether we do or we don't, mm -hmm. if we want to stop doing things mm -hmm. that are detrimental to mm -hmm. our hormone health, mm -hmm. neurotransmitter health, yeah. what would be the most common things that you see as far as either habits with yeah. nutrition or lifestyle? You mentioned kind of that constant stress. We know that that's a problem. But what are the other most common problematic yeah. things that people are doing that can really throw the system off and create that negative downward cascade? Yeah. I love that question. The first thing that comes to mind is sleep. And that, again, seems so obvious and so basic. And you know, people sometimes are like, oh, I know I should get more sleep. But you really have to understand that if you're not prioritizing sleep, that the expectations that things are going to get better without adequate sleep, you yeah. can't just medicate or push your way through it. So burning the midnight oil, to use an antiquated phrase, and trying to get up early. And again, I think about so many of my patients that are getting up trying to get their teenagers ready for school, you know, 6 a.m. out the door, they're staying up till 11, trying to just get some work done, answering emails that are constantly giving us notifications on our phones, waking up multiple times through the night because they're having to urinate or that they're just tossing and turning because they're thinking about work. Yeah. Sleep has to be addressed. And yeah. if you're not prioritizing your sleep, there's not a whole lot that I, I feel like the other 
areas of health are going to be able to significantly influence. Could not agree more with that. The second would definitely be the lack of intentional movement. One of my nutritionists at Vita, her name is Carolina, she uses the term intentional movement a lot, which I like. People will not prioritize movement because of time often. Mm -hmm. I am a single mom of a five-year-old. I get it. I work full time. Um, But it has to be prioritized in order to be able to achieve, again, the goals that you want to do. Intentional movement doesn't have to be high intensity. Uh, I think it's important that it also doesn't have to be long in duration. You don't have to go to the gym for an hour. Five minutes of going up and down the stairs or walking, you know, getting a step in the home, it's just something that you can get your heart rate up, especially after a meal, can make a huge difference. And again, going back to that insulin resistance piece, I'm a big fan of people getting a weighted vest. You know, you can get these from any online large retailer. And they're so effective at just increasing a little bit of that strength training aspect, even in things like walking around the neighborhood can make a huge difference for those with young children, making sure that you're like strapping them on and then adding whatever you can in terms of a backpack because that can make a big difference. So intentional movement, I would say, is really critical, but not just saying, you know, yeah, 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 yeah making a plan for yourself and strength training, just going back to that metabolism piece. If we don't address metabolism, our hormones are not going, we're not going to get where we want with our hormones. And so prioritizing that is really critical. So that's what I would say about movement. You know, nutrition is obvious. This is, you know, your realm. You talk about this with your clients every single day, but I really don't see women get enough protein. Mm -hmm. And with uh, Ozempic or semaglutide, um, the generic form of, of Ozempic being extremely popular these days, which is mm-hmm. a medication that I use in my practice a lot with patients, that is causing an even bigger concern around, again, loss of lean muscle tissue. And yes. I actually have a doctor mm-hmm. talking about that exact subject in yes. a few weeks. So we're going to dive deep on that. But absolutely, that's a major concern. It's a major concern. And you get somebody who may only be in a category of lean tissue that's borderline to start. You give them an agent that can accelerate loss of lean tissue. And then they go off this, they may lose weight, but they then end up in a situation that is potentially more metabolically compromised in the end. With that being said, I do prescribe this. I do find that there is a a time and a place. I use it for weight loss often. But I require them to work with a nutritionist who has understanding of ensuring they're getting adequate amount of of protein. And protein in the diet is is just underrated right now. You know, people go through trends. uh, Nutrition is certainly no stranger to (laughs) fads and trends. And, you know, fats, you know, were all the rage five years ago. And I think they still are really, really important to emphasize healthy fats, particularly for metabolic balance as well. But I think the key to the kingdom, frankly, is eat mostly plants, some meats, lots of fish, and ensure that you're getting at least a minimum amount of protein for your body weight and type based on your goals. And usually a you know, nutritionist is the best person to kind of help you work through that. Or using some of these really great apps. Chronometer is, is one that um, I know my nutrition team loves. It's the one I use too. Yeah, it's a good one. 
So those are some just the basic suggestions. And then also things like sleep apnea can go undiagnosed. If somebody is even having some mild snoring, that can influence how their body is able to not only get oxygen to their brain and cause that restorative sleep, but also influencing their hormones. Weight gain increases the risk for sleep apnea. And so we have this unfortunate cascade of somebody gets really busy, their metabolism is changing, which influences their hormones, which then they develop sleep apnea, which exacerbates their metabolic dysfunction and their hormones. And then there's a depletion of some of those feel-good neurotransmitters. So we have to look at if there's any kind of snoring that asking their doctor for a sleep study referral, because that's that's a fix. It's a non-pharmacologic fix that can be extremely beneficial. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And everyone check out my episode the week before this with Dana Tasha. She is a myofunctional Perfect. therapist and we talk a lot about sleep and um, sleep apnea and all those things. So we do a deep dive on that, which is a really great, great episode if you're you know, dealing with any of those challenges or your partner snores. Before we shift gears, because I definitely want to make sure we get everything in in the interest yeah. of time, touch, and I know this is a big subject, but touch a little on alcohol. Yeah. Oh, gosh. The small <laughs> wine club. Uh, yeah. Thing. Yeah. Bluntly, alcohol is a toxicant. There is not a large amount of benefit, if any. Um, you could make a caveat that if somebody socially is engaging more, that there are benefits in, in that piece because social community is very important. But there really is no significant benefit to alcohol. And alcohol is processed, has more calories per gram than carbohydrates, seven calories per gram versus carbohydrates are four. It has zero nutritional value to it and is absolutely something that can disrupt sleep. It will increase the demand for the liver, obviously, to be processed at night and depletes something called glycine, which is a uh, important amino acid that is responsible for keeping the brain calm and cool and relaxed. Uh, if you get a depletion of glycine, you often will experience frequent wakings at night, which mm, is a whole, yeah. whole other conversation we could talk about. But I personally, I understand why people still uh, engage regularly in alcohol consumption. I personally enjoy a glass of wine with my partner, but I know that I'm not going to feel as clear even yeah. after one glass of wine the next day. I, it Same is here. a known thing. And as long as you are making a choice, just like if you go and you eat some gummy bears, you probably know intuitively gummy bears are not good for you. <laughs> but if right. you really want the gummy bears, okay. But alcohol can influence a whole sorts of things. There is a disruption in hormone processing with alcohol. And so if somebody's already struggling with how their hormones are processed through the liver, that is only going to add a little bit more work. You can think of it as just it's pushing people to the back of the line and hormones are tend to be um, in that realm. Alcohol is prioritized because it is a toxin. Right. Yeah. Scare your audience enough. <laughs> well, I think they've probably heard me make points about that before. And I'm the same as you. You know, I love a beautiful craft cocktail or a glass of wine now and then, but I definitely notice its effects, especially now that I'm more in touch with my body. Yeah. Um, when I was more dissociated from my body, it was a little different, but now I kind of know what's going on and I can really tell just by looking yeah. at my aura ring data, like, ooh, yeah. okay. And it's just no longer worth it to me. Yeah. 
to do it more often than than once in a while because mm-hmm. my health is a priority. Mm-hmm. And I, I just feel like we are exposed to so many toxins in our world that we have absolutely no control over that, mm-hmm. you know, we can't be insane about it. Right. But the ones that we do have control over and can avoid, hey, let's just do our best. Yeah. And I think, again, looking at that social balance and just like right. anything, you know, moderation is critical, but alcohol, it does slow everything down and makes it so the body has to work a little bit harder. And if that's an accepted risk, mm-hmm. when it comes to pathologies that can emerge, non-alcoholic and alcoholic fatty liver disease is one of the biggest epidemics in this country that coincides with high blood sugar, diabetes, elevated triglycerides, the whole gamut. And when you have fat deposits into your liver, again, like what's the organ that's responsible for processing hormones and a variety of other really important functions. So, you know, you can't have this expectation that you're going to feel hormonally well if you're not treating your body with the respect that it's demanding when it starts to let you know, hey, this is not I don't like this. I don't feel good. And I love the way that you phrased that, treating your body with the respect that it's demanding when it's sending you these messages. That's Mm -hmm. a very, very different mindset and way of approaching this than saying, well, I'm depriving myself of something. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a very cultural thing Mm -hmm. here that, Mm -hmm. oh, well, you don't have to deprive. You shouldn't have to deprive yourself. It's not depriving yourself. It's really treating your body with respect and giving it what it needs in each Mm -hmm. stage of life, right? And that's a much more empowered place to come from. Yes. Yes. And it just feels better. (laughs) And it feels better when you make those choices because then your energy is better. Your sleep is better. You enjoy your life more. So what are you actually depriving yourself of? And Jenny, have you seen those wine alternatives that are full of adaptogenic herbs and things that are actually beneficial? Yeah. I often give them as client gifts. I love yeah. them. <laughs> I love, like there's a couple of them that I absolutely love and think that they taste super good and they're not high in sugar. And I, you know, you can put them in a wine glass even, and then you right. feel like you're, you know, and it's not to and try to fool anybody, but really like you are prioritizing your health when yes. you make those choices. And if your goal is to become intoxicated, well, it's not going to work, but meaning drinking those, but it it certainly will make you feel a lot better the next day. Absolutely. And I think sometimes the ritual of having that lovely, you know, special drink in a pretty glass is important. I think that that's a healthy thing. I don't have any issue with that. I encourage people often to create those rituals for themselves because that's usually what they want. That's the partition between maybe work and, and personal time or now I'm on vacation all of those things that I think are significant and even healthy, and we can do them in ways that serve us better. Yep. Agree. Yeah. So a couple things that I'd love to ask you. We've touched on this a little bit, but when you're working with patients, how do you sort of guide them out of that sort of mentality of being disempowered and thinking, well, it's all downhill from here after a certain age? What are the most important ways? You know, we talked about sleep, intentional movement, getting enough protein, maybe adjusting your alcohol, possibly maybe even caffeine intake, right, mm-hmm. to feel better. But what do you think are the top few ways yeah. or what are the biggest tips that you would leave listeners with to help them have healthier hormones and maintain healthier metabolism and body composition in perimenopause and beyond? 
Yeah. So this might seem like a slight departure from what we've already talked about, but the mental, emotional, spiritual peace, which is when anyone Mm. is familiar with functional medicine, the center of what's called the matrix, which is really the operating system in which functional medicine is taught, is mental, emotional, spiritual. And if that piece is not being addressed, um, which can obviously be influenced by things like sleep and nutrition and exercise, we're not going to get where we want to be. And the empowerment piece really comes from within. It comes from our perceptions of ourselves. It comes from how we engage in the world with putting ourselves as a priority. And I look at something called attachment theory, which has a lot to do with how we relate to our intimate partners, but also how we relate to others, friendships, family members, and can have some behaviors of self-abandonment, both in all the different types of attachment. And in Mm -hmm. the time we have, we don't have the opportunity to dive into all of that. But very briefly, there's four different attachment types. There's an anxious type. There's a dismissive avoidant type. There's a fearful avoidant type, and then there's a secure, and we would all aspire to be secure. And again, bringing it back to how somebody can look within and say, okay, how does this attachment type influence my mental, emotional wellness? Well, if you're constantly prioritizing, let's say, your partner, your kids, your work over yourself, you may be someone who leans towards the anxious attachment type because Mm -hmm. you feel your worth is only going to be achieved by giving yourself to others. Right. And until you start to prioritize how to give yourself back to you, and that can be small things. You don't have to quit your job and abandon your children and get divorced in order to do this. But it may be saying no to a project request or asking your partner to drive your kids to the soccer practice or spending a weekend where you are just able to write in your journal, there are ways that we can get back to ourselves. And that is such a common thing for women to be giving more than we have the capacity to do. And we run on an empty tank. The reason that attachment theory can be so useful is because it gives you the understanding of why you developed the way that you did, usually due to very early childhood programming, which when your therapist says, you know, it's all your parents' fault, it kind of is. Like, <laughs> I love them, right? As, as a parent myself, I'm like, oh, how do I not screw him up? Like, how do I not, how do, I not do this? But um, it, there can be so many little micro traumas that can happen that are just daily life, you know, that you sure. as a very young child perceived and now you have spent the rest of your adult life trying to earn other people's worth or yeah. token for the dismissive avoidant types. Maybe you've kept people a distance away because having people get to know who you really are doesn't feel safe. And vulnerability True. is a really uncomfortable thing. So therefore, <laughs> so having – Winning it myself. Yeah. And giving yourself the opportunity to be more vulnerable with others is part of that work to do. And it's actually the opposite of the anxious type. So I think that the foundations of health, we already talked about sleep, exercise, nutrition, stress management, you know, reduction of toxicants like alcohol and caffeine. Absolutely. But if we don't talk about how our Mm -hmm. mental emotional space influences how these other facets are working, we're not going to prioritize exercise. 
We're not going to welcome in healthy conversations with friends and family members and intimate partners. We're not going to be able to achieve what we want to do if the mental piece isn't there. And I personally have really fallen in love with attachment theory because of the way that it contextualizes the framework of how our brains develop Mm -hmm. and how we relate to others and ourselves. So strongly encourage anyone who's interested. The book Attached by Levine is is an excellent resource, as is personaldevelopmentschool.com is another online resource that I refer people to a lot. Cool. We'll put those in the show notes for you as well. And Dr. Leary, will you come back one day and do an episode with me just on attachment theory? Oh my God, any day. Okay, awesome. I my, think people would be really curious to hear that. I think that would be a really valuable. Yeah. I just did this training for the Functional Medicine Coaching Academy for them. I did a three-part series on attachment theory in relation to sexual desire and uh, general uh, applications of functional medicine. And attachment theory is just so central in my opinion. So I would love to. Awesome. Okay. That sounds great. Well, this has been such a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. And this is such great information. Tell everyone where they can find you. And um, again, we'll put this all in the show notes, but yeah, give us the 411. So I have a clinical practice at Vita Integrated Health. So that is in the Seattle area. We have five clinics, three of which have functional medicine. I'm the residency director. So I do have residents that I oversee as well as a fantastic colleague over in Bellevue. So we are currently in the midst of some transitions, but would love if anyone is interested in doing clinical consults, that is where to find me. And I also have a blog, powersexbeauty.com, which is, again, my passion project, lots of articles on attachment theory, hypoactive sexual desire disorder, and some hormonal pieces, both for men and women on there. So um, that is where you can find me. Awesome. Yeah, it's a really great resource. So wonderful. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. We'll look forward to future episodes. And thanks for joining us, everybody. And we'll see you next time. Thanks, Jean. Hey there. Thanks for hanging out with me today. And if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave me a quick review. Also check out the show notes for links to connect, follow, and share this podcast and for information featured in each episode. See you next time. I am not a doctor and the content here should not be taken as medical advice. All information in this podcast is for informational purposes only, does not constitute medical advice and does not establish any kind of practitioner or coach client relationship. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Do not disregard medical advice or delay seeking medical advice because of information you hear in this podcast or any other. And do not start or stop any medications without speaking to your health provider. Always seek the advice of a qualified health practitioner before undertaking a new health regimen. This podcast and website represents the opinion of Jeannie Oliver and guests to the show. Opinions of guests are their own and do not reflect the opinions of Jeannie Oliver Wellness, LLC, or our producers.